You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. That's pretty neat to see the future unfold uh, here on stage at Seabreeze. Also, as we're building a new kids building out there, as I was coming on campus today, I thought, you know, this is a pretty unique opportunity to see um, building occur on a campus. We get to come every Sunday and see what's happening. Uh, In my almost 31 years here, this is the only time we've been able to worship at the same location where we see kind of the future unfolding before us in a physical way. So it's pretty neat. Well, happy Mother's Day again uh, to everyone. We're so glad that you've joined us. It's good to see everyone today. Back on Easter, I started a message series that we're going to wrap up today called Think. And the purpose of this series has been to call all of us to think more deeply and more intentionally about our lives and about what's going on uh, in our culture right now, and also to invite us to think in the shadow of what God has said in the pages of the Bible. Now, I want to wrap up today by being very clear about what this will mean. If you do this, if you really think deeply and intentionally, and you really take the Bible seriously, you will find yourself in the awkward position of disagreeing with more and more of the ideas in our culture. And it won't just be a disagreement on paper. It'll be a disagreement in person. Your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends and your family members will disagree with you and you with them. Now, our culture used to tolerate and even respect disagreement because, let's be honest, disagreement is just the natural outcome of independent thinking. But our culture no longer tolerates disagreement. That's no longer the case. We now live in a shut-up culture. The idea is we must agree with the right ideas or we must sit down and shut our mouths. The term that's been coined recently to describe this phenomenon is a term I'm sure you're familiar with, and that is cancel culture. What it means is if a company or if an individual says the wrong thing, in other words, they disagree with some of the dominant ideas in our culture right now, then they are vilified and they are publicly punished, canceled, until they apologize, not just once, but repeatedly and profusely for the error in their thinking. And this experience for me, it just occurred to me a few months ago, it feels like I'm back in high school. Now, I don't know what your high school experience was like, but in my high school, everyone was trying to be cool and liked. There was a lot of social pressure because of that. And the problem is, you never knew for sure what you could or couldn't say because what was cool kept changing so rapidly. And so you showed up on campus every day just kind of nervous and deciding, you know, I probably shouldn't say anything because it's going to be the wrong thing. And I'm not going to be cool. I'm, I'm going to be un- disliked. Now, a not, not a lot of good thinking takes place in that amount of social pressure. I didn't do a lot of good thinking in high school. And it's kind of the case now in this culture. Not a lot of good thinking is occurring right now in our culture because we're all in high school together. 
we're under a tremendous amount of social pressure to think the right things, to be cool. And that takes a lot of mental energy. That's why we're not, it's not that we're not capable of thinking. We just don't have the brain cells left because it takes so much time to keep up with what is and what isn't acceptable and what you can and cannot say. And by the time you get done with that, you don't have any brain cells left to actually think for yourself. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you take the Bible seriously, this presents us with two significant challenges. Challenge number one is this. We have to become okay with being uncool and being called names that are not true of us. And that's hard. We will be called names that just aren't true of us. We will be accused of being phobic, which means fearful, when we're not afraid of these things at all. We will be labeled as hateful when we're not hateful. We just disagree. But it's really hard to be called things that aren't true of you. And if my memory in high school serves me correctly, it's really hard to be a nerd. It's really hard to be uncool. And that's why a lot of Christians are caving under the peer pressure of our culture. They're wobbling on whether the Bible really is something that you can trust and build your life on. Because the pressure is so great. So that's the first challenge. We're going to have to be okay with being uncool and being called names that aren't true of us. We're just going to have to get used to that. The second challenge is we have to learn how to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the cool people of our culture who have decided that Jesus Christ is not good news. He's, in fact, bad news. That is a communications challenge. I mean, in high school, I wasn't one of the cool kids. And it was really hard to ever walk up to one of the cool kids and talk to them. But that's the position we are increasingly in as followers of Jesus Christ. We are the has-beens. We've had our run. It's over. We're not cool anymore. But we must figure out how do we share the good news of Jesus Christ because his love and his forgiveness is the only hope that any of us ever have in this life. He is the good news. But how do we share that with people who think he's the bad news? How do we do this? Well, as the subtitle in the message today says, I think we need to move from hashtags, from labels, to conversations. The use of a hashtag to categorize content was first used on Twitter during the California wildfires back in 2007. It's not that old. This was the hashtag, San Diego Fire. So what the hashtag does is it categorizes content. And this was the first time the hashtag was used, and it became so popular because people were wanting to figure out what's going on with the fires in California. And if you just went online, you'd get lost. But if you typed in this hashtag, 
on Twitter, it would categorize all of the relevant content around that fire, the pictures and the posts, and you could get right to what you were looking for. And it became so popular that more and more users began using hashtags to group relevant content. It took two years for Twitter to actually support this. It became popular long before Twitter recognized the brilliance of it. So hashtags can be really helpful. But while they are helpful for searching for relevant information, they're not as helpful when it comes to understanding, thinking. That's because, like all labels, they lack the ability to convey the complexity of what's behind the label. You know, you can label a person and still know very little about who they are because people are complex. They're not one-dimensional. The same thing is true of an idea. You can label an idea and still really know very little about that idea because ideas are complex. So hashtags are better suited for stating a position on a topic. They don't do well when it comes to inviting a respectful conversation or discussion on that topic. So here's what I think is happening in our culture right now. Hashtags have become kind of like a, a sign over the door of a room, a thought room, that gathers all of the people who agree with that idea, that label, that hashtag. And so in that thought room, now this is not a physical room, but it's, it's a room that gathers people who agree. So in that room, everyone vents and rails against the people who don't agree with that idea and who, for the most part, are not in that room. Meanwhile, just down the hall, in another thought room, are all the people who disagree with the people in the other room. They have gathered under a different hashtag. Now, occasionally people from these thought rooms throw a thought grenade into each other's room just to kind of stir things up, to vent. They post a verbal attack against a hashtag that they oppose. But all that does is it just fires up both rooms. It never actually leads to better and deeper thinking on whatever the topic is. What it does is it ends up thickening the walls that separate the rooms from each other. So over time, the thought walls get thicker and thicker and thicker, and the disagreements become more and more entrenched. This is pretty much how we disagree now in our culture. We almost never have a face-to-face, -face, real conversation with someone we disagree with. We rail against the faceless people that we disagree with. And we do that in the presence, at least the thought presence, and sometimes the actual presence of those that we agree with. So increasingly in our culture, everybody is now in a room with thick walls, thought walls that separate them from those they disagree with. Now, this phenomenon didn't start with hashtags. Hashtags, it's just a method. They, they didn't create this. Even if you've never used a hashtag or still don't really even know what a hashtag is or you've never posted on Twitter, you are in a thought room with people you, you agree with. 
So how do we move from hashtags to conversations? I think one of the best, most helpful verses found in the New Testament book of 2 Timothy. We're going to look at verse 24 this morning, but I want to read the verse before it, and later we'll read a few verses after it. But here's what it says, 2 Timothy 2, 23 through 24. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Because you know they only produce quarrels. And here's the key verse we're going to focus on. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. This verse gives us a four-step path to conversations with people we disagree with. That's what this is. This, This is talking about how do you handle a relationship with someone you disagree with. And that's already the case, and it's only going to become more and more the case. So let's walk through these four. First, don't quarrel. Don't get in arguments. That's what it says. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. It's not, hey, it's not a good idea. It's no, don't quarrel. The word quarrel means to go to war. It means to fight. Now, I grew up with two brothers, so I'm very familiar with the idea of quarreling and fighting. We did a lot of it. How would it start? Well, the way every quarrel, argument starts, starts with a disagreement. Whenever there was a disagreement between us, we'd almost never respond to each other by trying to understand the other person's point. I don't remember that happening ever when there was a disagreement. Why? Well, because what's true of every argument is we are convinced that we're right. We're convinced of our point. And so, as brothers, we would make our respective points with ever-increasing volume and ever-increasing anger. Sometimes the verbal fight would spill over into physical fights. But no one of us, brothers, ever changed our minds because of a fight. None of us ever got to the point where we were pinned on the ground and realized, you know what, you were right. (laughs) Or the verbal argument ended with one of us saying, huh, I'd never thought of it that way. You know what, I'm going to have to think about that. That never occurred. Quarreling, arguing, never works never produces the outcome we hope it does. So the question is, how do, you, how do you know if you're in a quarrel, an argument, rather than a conversation? How do you know? The key indicator is this. No one is listening. That's how you know you're in an argument. You're not listening, they're not listening. A quarrel or an argument means both sides are convinced they're right. So what that means is their ears are closed and their mouths are open. They are in broadcast mode. They are not in receiving mode. They're not trying to understand. They're simply trying to make their point. If they do go quiet, if their mouth closes for a moment, it's not because they're now thinking and listening to what's being said. No, we know what happens. Their mind is only thinking about how to land the next verbal blow in a way that might make their point. So a quarrel is two people talking and no one listening. That's what a quarrel is. And therefore, it is a complete waste of everyone's time. 
You may feel like, I've got to make my point. I've got to stand up for the truth. But they're not listening. So it's like standing in a room all by yourself, yelling the truth to the empty room. There's no value in it. Now, you can quarrel if you want to. But if you intend to be the Lord's servant, as this verse says, you must not do this. Why? Why is this a requirement of people that God says, if, if you're my servant, don't quarrel? Why, why is that a requirement? Because whenever you argue, whenever you quarrel, you're stepping on something that's very sacred to God, very important to him. And that is the freedom to think. God created us with minds that are capable and free. He gave us minds to think. What that means is that we can and do come to different conclusions. We disagree. We may come to a bad conclusion. We may come to a wrong conclusion. But we are free to think that thought. Without that freedom wired into us, hardwired into us, we would at best be highly sophisticated robots programmed to act but not free to think and then direct our actions. We are not highly sophisticated robots. We are people created in the image of God to think and then to act. So whenever we quarrel, whenever we argue, whenever we fight, we are not treating people as people. We are treating them as robots that have a screw loose that needs to be reprogrammed and we've got just the hammer and just the screwdriver for it. We're, we're not respecting them. We're not respecting their right to think and to disagree with us. And God says, if you do that, you're not my servant. That is of no service to God. It does damage to the kind of followers that he invites. You see, God doesn't invite us just to agree with him. He invites us to actually love him. That requires absolute freedom. I mean, coerced love is not love. Two thousand years ago, right after Jesus left, after his resurrection, all of his followers found themselves in dire straits because it was a dangerous thing for the first several hundred years to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It was illegal in the Roman Empire, which was the dominant empire at the time. If you decide to follow Jesus Christ, you often paid for it with your life, and it was never or rarely a quick death. It was a painful death. Romans had perfected awful and long and torturous ways to die. The cross was just one of them. But then, a few hundred years later, in 312 A.D., the Roman Emperor Constantine said that he saw a vision of Jesus Christ and the cross. And as a result, he made some kind of decision. We're not really sure for what reason, if it was a real decision, but the result of the decision was, is he issued an edict that changed following Jesus Christ from being illegal to being legal. 
And what happened gradually over the next hundred years is the church of Jesus Christ moved from being something that was illegal to do to something that was now mandatory. It became law. It was required for you to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to be a part of church. Now, on the surface, that would appear to be a tremendous victory for the church, but it was an absolute disaster. Because what had once been a gathering by choice now became a gathering by coercion. You had to be here. And then the church began to rely on the power of force to grow and advance, not the power of truth and of God to grow and advance. So what happened is thinking took a back burner. Thinking went into decline. Because you didn't need to convince someone that this is true. You didn't need to explain why you'd become a follower of Jesus Christ. It's law. You had to. You didn't need to think about it. You just had to decide whether you wanted to pay the price of defying the emperor or not. There was no need to think. And so, because we prefer to be lazy thinkers, thinking went into decline. That moment in history ushered in 900 years of history that historians refer to as the Dark Ages. It's not entirely accurate. There's some good things that came out of that period of time, but it's a pretty compelling label. It became a time of superstition and cultural decline. Almost in every category, human life, rather than flourishing, became awful. Inquisitions were launched. Inquisitions, the purpose of an inquisition is to make sure that you are thinking the right thing. And if not, the penalty was often death. Heresy was a capital crime. Heresy is to get your thoughts about God wrong. That wasn't just a slap on the wrist. That was a burning at the stake consequence by law. And what happened is the worst thing of all, Christianity, the message of Jesus Christ, what he taught, what he did, shifted from the good news that it is to the bad news that it became. It was a disaster. And this was all done in the name of Jesus Christ. But let me be very clear, it was not done in service to him. Because what does this verse say? The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Certainly must not burn people at the stake for disagreeing. Certainly must not make going to church a mandatory thing and not going illegal. It was done in the name of the Christ, but these were not his servants. Because the big marker of a servant of Christ is that he or she doesn't quarrel. When they sense they're in an argument, they gracefully bow out. Now, I'll tell you, this takes practice. To both recognize that you're in an argument and to sidestep it. And it takes a lot of humility because it feels like you're admitting defeat. But you're not. You're serving your master, Jesus Christ. So let me just give you some quick pointers on how to know you're in an argument and then one idea on how to sidestep. Just kind of get out of the way of an argument. 
Here's some indicators that have helped me to know, oh, I'm in an argument. Indicator number one, you're getting upset. Not guaranteed, but mm, that might be something to look at. They're getting upset. Mm, if you're both upset, mm, probably in an argument. You feel like you're repeating yourself. Now, if it's not with your two-year-old, that, that just happens with young children. But if it's with fellow adults and you just keep repeating yourself, you have to ask, why do I keep repeating myself? It's because I'm trying to make the same point over and over and over again. So they're not listening. I must be in an argument. Or they're repeating themselves. You're in an argument. Or you recognize you're not listening. They get done saying something, and you honestly think, I don't know what they said. Because I was loading up my bullets of thought, and I was getting ready to shoot those. You're in an argument. So you need to stop. The best move, I think, that describes it is sidestep. Just get out of the way. Now, if you're early in the argument, you can just change topics. But if you're deep in the argument, you probably need to say something a little more pointed. So here's a suggestion. Just say, you know what? I really value this relationship. And I don't think this conversation is really helping us right now. So let, let, let's just table this. Let, you know, maybe, maybe we can talk about it later. Maybe not. That's fine. But I value you more than this conversation. I don't think this is helping us. You come up with your own version. But just stop. End. Sidestep. Don't quarrel. Number two, be kind. Be kind. Instead, be kind to who? Everyone. Not just those that, dis that agree with you, but those that disagree with you. So what are the implications of this statement for our hashtag thought room separated culture? What this means is we got to get out of our rooms more and visit some of the other rooms. Not to drop a verbal bomb, but in kindness. You see, it turns out that the hashtag approach to information online has been expanded into a two-way search. Here's what I mean by that. You are searching. You may be using hashtags or not, but you're searching for content, information online. While you are searching, companies are searching you. It's a two-way search. They are trying to see what you're looking for so they can find out what room you are probably in, what thought room you're in, and they can then sell you stuff that people in that room tend to buy. They, trust me, they are amazingly good at this. You may not even know what thought room you're in. They do. YouTube knows who you are and recommends videos that fit with you. They've built software to label you and to drive content and advertisement to you. Apple News knows who you are and recommends news sources that agree with your perspective. Now, at one level, this sounds really helpful. Sounds kind of like an attentive butler trying to figure out what you really like so they can serve you better. But in reality, it gives you less and less reason to ever leave your hashtag room and learn how to talk to someone that disagrees with you. I mean, I'll just say, in our culture, 
we have lost the ability to respectfully have any conversation with someone who disagrees with us. That's gone. But if you're going to be a servant of Christ, you need to regain that ability. This phenomenon has been labeled by social scientists. It's called the daily me. I mentioned this several years ago. I think it's a pretty interesting designation. The daily me is this, is you wake up every day and all you hear are things you agree with. It's described as a cultural echo chamber where you only hear things you already agree with. So we read or we watch news from a source that agrees with our view. We read the blogs, listen to the podcasts that reinforce what we already think and that vilify those who don't agree with us. And then we follow the lives of the people that we like and who like us. And what this means is in this cultural echo chamber, it's another term, I think, for thought room. In this cultural echo chamber, we don't get out of our ideas room that much, our idea rooms that much. Now, that makes our life more comfortable, especially in an antagonistic culture. But here's the problem with that. If we don't get out of our thought rooms much, you know what else doesn't get out of our thought rooms? The good news of Jesus Christ doesn't get out. The gospel is stuck behind these walls because we're busy hanging out with and talking with and reading and listening to everyone we agree with. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, has got to get out. So how can you get out more and interact with everyone, not just the people that agree with you? The key is by being kind. This kind-to-everyone statement follows the word instead. Instead of what? What just preceded it, instead of arguing, instead of quarreling. So in response to a disagreement, the normal response is to argue. But instead of that, the Lord's servant must respond by sidestepping the argument and then engaging in kindness. The word kind means to give what is helpful. We think being kind means just being nice. That's not the depth of what it really means. Being kind means to actually do something that is of benefit and blessing and help to someone else's life. It's a concrete, tangible input of good into their life. 1 Corinthians 3.9 is a verse that has helped me so much on framing my understanding and conversations with people that I disagree with. Here's what it says. For we are co-workers in God's service. So again, we're servants of Christ. We're co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Very short verse, but it kind of identifies the roles and the responsibilities when we're in a conversation, when we're trying to help someone that needs to change. We are co-workers. We're just one of the workers in this project, in service to God. They are God's field, God's building. What this is saying is people are God's project. He is like a farmer working his field or like an owner building a building on his property. God is the one in charge of the project of changing people, not us. 
the best we can hope for is getting a job on site. So whenever we quarrel, we are treating people like we own them. And we are running the change project, but we aren't. God's the owner. We're just servants of his. As I said, the best we can hope for is to get a job on the project that God is in charge of and God is running. And here's where being kind comes into this. Being kind is how you apply for the job of God's servant in the life of somebody else. That's about the main qualification. Be kind. It's how you get on site. You've probably seen the fence that's around the building that, the kids' building that we're building right there. It's a construction fence. Why, why is there a construction fence around that project? It's because we don't want to just let anyone on site start building something. They might do damage. They might not know what they're doing. They might steal something. They might even think they're doing something helpful, but they're building with a different set of plans, and therefore they're doing damage. So we've got a fence around the project that is this building to secure it. The same kind of thing is true of people. There is a, a fence around every heart for a good reason. We don't just let anyone into our heart, let them start building, because they might do damage, intentional or unintentional. So whenever you start doing something that's actually helpful and you do that over time for another person, they just might open the gate and let you on site, let you into their hearts. And at that point, you are perfectly positioned to serve God. You're not now in charge of the project. You're just on site. You can actually help. You can be a servant of God in his project. Arguing is just yelling over the construction fence. That's just irritating. You know, if someone sat here all day, hey, do this. Hey, don't put that nail there. That doesn't look level to me. We'd eventually have them removed. Just take your opinions to another job site. We're good. And that's what arguing is. We're just yelling over the fence, hey, People are like, who are you? Nothing is built that way. So if you want to be used by God in someone else's life, then build into their lives. Don't just tell them what you think. Be kind. Next, be ready to teach. Be ready to teach. That's what it means, able to teach. Given the opportunity, you're ready. If you get on site in someone's heart, it's not just so you can walk around. It's so you can actually help. So you need to know how to explain God's truth in a way that makes sense so that they, they can use it to build with if they choose to. Now, that may sound intimidating. Because let's be honest, the Bible is it's a big book. You may not have read it all. None of us have mastered all of its content and can explain everything in there. So what would qualify us to teach? Well, if you've made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, you are qualified to teach on that. 
The reason is that you came to a conclusion about Jesus and you made a decision. There was a thought path that took you to that decision. If you have the opportunity, you can take people for a walk with you down that thought path to explain why you made the decision. I mean, why did you decide to follow Jesus? What were the reasons? Hopefully, you've got some good reasons. One of the good things about the way our culture is going right now is it, no one is going to be a follower of Jesus Christ just because they grew up in it. It's too uncool to do that. So increasingly, the only reason people are following Jesus Christ is they actually turned their brain on and they came to a conclusion to help people understand, why did you decide to do this? What were your reasons? How has this helped you? Keep the teaching personal because that's what you know. You know, if they ask you about some weird verse they've heard of in Leviticus, just be honest and say, I don't know. I don't know anything about that. What I do know is this. This has been my experience. Now, as time goes on, continue to learn more so you can explain more. But you're always an expert on the most important question. Why did you decide to follow Jesus Christ? If someone asked you that, would you, what would you say? If you'd be a deer in headlights, you're not ready to teach yet. So get ready. It doesn't have to be long. Just get ready. How would you explain it? Now, just to be clear, people aren't going to walk up to you and say, why are you a follower of Jesus Christ? I mean, maybe, but not very often. They don't ask that exact question. Here's the way the question comes. It's described in 1 Peter 3, 5. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. This is saying that if Jesus really is your boss, he really is Lord, then get ready to answer the question that people around you are going to ask. And that is, why are you so hopeful? Now, they're not going to ask that when things in your life are going good because they can see why you're so hopeful. Well, yeah, everything's going good. They're going to ask you that when things are going bad and they don't see any reason for you to continue to be hopeful and upbeat. COVID is a tremendous opportunity because it has made everyone's life hard in some way. And that is a tremendous opportunity. Because in that opportunity, true hope can shine. Now, if you have been, for the most part, a grumpy, angry person during COVID, absolutely no one is curious about you. <laughs> Everybody's been angry and grumpy during COVID. That doesn't stand out. It's like, why are you angry and grumpy? Oh, right, COVID. Everyone's that way. But if you've been kind and hopeful in the middle of this, that's going to get people wondering, what is going on with you? And you're going to get some opportunities. Lastly, don't take it personally. Not resentful. Not resentful. Resentment means to feel or express annoyance. So why does it end here? Why would a person who's worked hard to avoid arguments, who's been real kind and helpful, and then maybe they've had an opportunity to share what they think because they've been asked some questions, why does that person get resentful? It's because the person they're talking with still disagrees with them. Why does that get us so riled up on the inside? Why does that irritate us? Because it's a rejection of what we think, and that always feels personal. 
But if we are God's servant, then it isn't personal. We're not in charge of the project. It's, it's between them and God, not them and us. So we got to, again, sidestep, get out of the way. Resentment means you're still in the way. The next two verses in this passage point to this. Here's what it says, verse 25 and 26. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. What this is saying is the only rejection, thought rejection, that really matters is not about what we think. It's about what God thinks. Who cares if someone disagrees with us? If, if we disagree with God, now that's a problem. So we've got to get out of the way. What role does God have in this? He grants repentance. The word repent means to change your mind. We tend to think that we have the power to convince people. But all we can do is instruct, which means explain why we think this way. You see the order? We instruct, we explain our thinking. God grants repentance, and then they come to a knowledge of the truth. We tend to think there's just a straight line between we instruct, and the light goes on in their mind, and they go, wow, that's an amazing argument. I never thought of that. That's not the way it works. God is the one who needs to turn the light on. Why doesn't he? We don't know. My suspicion is almost always it has to do with the orientation of someone's heart towards him. When someone just doesn't want to know the truth about God, God doesn't trump that. So begin praying that they would just begin to want to know the truth. And then God will grant repentance. So let's sidestep around the quarrels and the arguments of our day. It's a waste of time. Instead, let's be kind, be ready to teach, and leave the changing to God. So as we wrap up this series, I want to invite you to stand with me. We're going to read this verse together. In the Bible, standing before God was kind of an indication not only of we honor you, God, but we're ready now to do what you've said. Having heard what you've said, we're now ready to do this. Now, this may not be true of all of you, but I want us to stand as a church and I want us to read this together. And may God use us to do this. So join me. We'll put it on the screen behind you. 2 Timothy 2.24. Let's read together. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room. I pray, God, that you would grant us courage in the face of our time. In the name of tolerance, we, as your followers, are being less and less tolerated. And so it's going to take tremendous courage for us to be true to you. And then I pray that you'd help us to be kind, to not just get resentful and angry about what's happening, but to engage the people that you've put around us that disagree with us, and to genuinely love them, to help them. And Father, I pray you'd give opportunities out of that to explain our thinking. And we know that our thinking is flawed too. So help us to be humble. Help us to be patient with people. And oh God, I pray you'd use us as your servants 
on your project, which is other people. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.